We are studying tonight Article um, 6 of the Belgic Confession. So let's read that article together. Article 6, verse, uh, page 54. The difference between the canonical and apocryphal books. We distinguish those sacred books from the apocryphal, namely the third and fourth books of Esdras, the books of Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Jesus, Sirach, Baruch, the appendix to the book of Esther, the song of the three children in the furnace, the history of Susanna, of Bel and the dragon, the prayer of Manasseh, and the two books of the Maccabees, all of which the church may read and take instruction from so far as they agree with the canonical books. But they are far from having such power and efficacy that we may from their testimony confirm any point of faith or of the Christian religion. Much less may they be used to detract from the authority of the other, that is, the sacred books. Uh, brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the, this afternoon we deal one more time with the subject of the canon of the scriptures. We've uh, seen in Article 4 that the Confession gives us a list of the canonical books, both of the Old and New Testament, and that in Article 5 it teaches us uh, where we learn about the canonical books, the authority by which we accept those canonical books as canonical. We saw that this is from those books themselves, especially. And here we come to the subject of the Apocrypha, that is, books which have sometimes been considered to be canonical or which have been considered by some as perhaps having a place in the canon, but which ultimately were not accepted by the church as uh, inspired or canonical. Now the article talks only about Old Testament Apocrypha. All the books that are listed there are uh, Old Testament Apocrypha. It says nothing about the New Testament Apocrypha. And I want to talk a little bit also about some of the New Testament Apocrypha this afternoon. So those are going to be the two parts of our discussion tonight. First of all, we'll talk about what the Confession has to say about the Old Testament Apocrypha, go a little bit beyond what the Confession has to say, actually, and then talk also about some of the New Testament Apocrypha. Now, the list of uh, apocryphal books that we have here in Article 6 is not a complete list of uh, writings that... Uh, uh, some have considered canonical or have considered at least for a place in the canon. In fact, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, there are a couple of books that are accepted that are not listed here, 3rd and 4th Maccabees. And in the Ethiopian Church, there are some uh, um, additional books besides those, books like Enoch, 4th Baruch, Josephon, Jubilees, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Maccabeon. And there were uh, others as well, which were never accepted by the Jews or by any part of the, the church of the New Testament. So the question which we have, first of all, about the uh, article is why uh, these 
Old Testament books and not any others. That is, why does the confession not list those other books which are included at least in the canon of some parts of the church? And I think the primary answer to that question is found in the Council of Trent, which met in the 1540s and 1550s and even the early 1560s. When the um, Protestant Reformation began in the early 1500s, the Protestants very quickly um, accepted the canon of the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, as we have that canon today. The 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 of the New Testament. But there was in the Roman Catholic Church an acceptance of some of the um, apocryphal books as well. And at the Council of Trent, the Council of Trent listed most of the books here that are found in Article 6 as canonical books. And not only listed those books as canonical books, said therefore that these books like Tobit and Judith and Wisdom and so on were inspired books and must be accepted by the church, but the Council of Trent even pronounced anathema on those who did not accept those books as canonical. So that was, I think, the reason why in this confession, which was written around 1560 or so, a little bit later than that, uh, the fathers were reacting to that Council of Trent and saying, we do not accept these books, which the Council of Trent has named as canonical, We do not accept them. We do not believe that they are canonical books. That was, again, a very courageous stand for uh, Guido de Bre, the author of the Confession, and the Protestant Church of that time, the Reformed Churches in the Lowlands of that time, to take that stand over against the Catholics. They were uh, putting their lives on the line when they made statements of this sort. They were... Uh, subject to the curse, according to the Roman Catholic Church, subject to a curse because they had not accepted these writings of the Old Testament period. Now, not all of the books that are mentioned here are listed by the Council of Trent, but the rest of the ones that are listed were nevertheless included in some Catholic Bibles. So the Protestant Reformation seemed to be focused and very naturally so, on those books which Roman Catholics sometimes considered to be canonical or at least included in their Bibles. And they are very emphatic then that there is a difference between these books and the inspired books. We distinguish those sacred books from the apocryphal Books. They are of a different character altogether. That's what the confession says. They are far from having such power and efficacy that we may from their testimony confirm any point of faith or of the Christian religion. Much less may they be used to detract from the authority of the other that is the sacred books. So, They say these are not sacred books. We may not use them to establish any point of faith. 
We may not use them to detract from the authority of the inspired books. They do not have the power and efficacy of the inspired books. They are a different class of book altogether. Now the one thing that the confession says, which we may question a little bit, is that statement um, about halfway through the article, a little bit more than halfway through the article, where it says, all of which, referring to those apocryphal books, the church may read and take instruction from so far as they agree with the canonical books. There does seem to have been among the uh, early Protestants a, a kind of a lingering sense that these books had some sort of special significance. And Protestant Bibles, early Protestant Bibles, actually sometimes included these books in them. It wasn't just the Catholics who had them in their Bibles, but sometimes the Protestants had them in their Bibles. Not as part of the inspired scriptures, but nevertheless, they were there in those Bibles. But the statement that the confession makes here is a statement with which we can fully agree. There's no problem with this statement, all of which the church may read and take instruction from so far as they agree with the canonical books. We do that with all kinds of books, don't we? We uh, take uh, Calvin's Institutes or a dogmatics book or a commentary on the scriptures and we make use of it not only in private but even in the preaching of the gospel. Do we take instruction from these books insofar as they agree with the canonical books? And we may even sometimes take instruction from fictional books written by authors today. We may use, for example, the fiction of, of C.S. Lewis or the fiction of J.R.R. Tolkien as um, illustrative of certain uh, scriptural teachings or whatever they may be, just as some of these books, which are uh, apocryphal history, false history, could be used perhaps to illustrate biblical lessons. But the key point, of course, that the confession makes is these books are merely human books. No more than that. Not any different from any other writing of men. One of the things that the confession does not do here is explain why we reject these books. It's implied, of course, that these books are of a different character, but it doesn't describe that character, nor does it say what standard has been used to determine that these are of a different character than the inspired books. And there are uh, several things that we can point out in this regard. First of all, uh, the Jews themselves did not accept them. The Jews, by the time of the beginning of the New Testament period, the time of Christ and his apostles, had established the canon, and the canon of the Old Testament was for them, as we have it also today, those books. 
And our Lord Jesus Christ and his uh, apostles accepted that Jewish canon. In fact, the passage that I read to you tonight from Matthew 23 makes mention indirectly of this Jewish canon. In uh, Matthew 23, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Jesus mentions two Old Testament martyrs there. There were, of course, other Old Testament martyrs. And the question is, why does he mention these two? In order to understand the answer to that question, we have to understand that the Jewish canon, though it contained the same books that our Old Testament canon contains, nevertheless arranged those books in a different order. The first of the books of the Jewish canon was Genesis, just as in ours, but the last of the books of the Jewish canon was Second Chronicles, not the prophet Malachi. Second Chronicles was the last of those books. And the story of Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, is found in Second Chronicles. So what Jesus was doing here was taking the beginning and the end of the Jewish canon, from Genesis to Second Chronicles, picking a martyr from each of those books and saying, all the righteous blood of all the martyrs who are described in your scriptures, in the scriptures of the Old Testament, is going to come on you. He and his apostles, therefore, embraced the Old Testament canon as the Jews had understood it. Furthermore, they uh, never referred to any of these apocryphal books in the same way that they often referred to the inspired books. You often have in the New Testament things like God said, or God spoke, or the Holy Spirit spoke, or the Holy Spirit said, or even the phrase, it is written. And whenever these things are said, the uh, apostles and our Lord Jesus Christ are referring to the inspired scriptures. God spoke, the Holy Spirit spoke, it is written, that is, God saw to it that it was written. These are the inspired scriptures. They never refer to these books in that kind of way. There may be a reference to the book of Enoch in uh, the letter of Jude. Probably there is a reference to the um, a book called Enoch in the letter of Jude, but Jude does not refer to that book in that way. He does not say, it is written. He does not say, God revealed this, or God spoke this, or the Holy Spirit says, or anything of that sort. They did not refer to these books, if they referred to them at all, then in the same way that they referred to the inspired books. That, of course, is not by itself 
sufficient to show us that certain books are inspired, all books referred to are inspired, and none of those not referred to in such a way are inspired. There are inspired books that are not referred to in the New Testament. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, but it's a factor to consider. They did not uh, quote from these books in the same way that they quoted from the inspired books. Neither did early Christians acknowledge those books that are listed in our confession as inspired. But there's more to it than that as well. We can bring up several other points. These books come from the intertestamentary period, that is, the period which ended with the prophet Malachi, or began with the prophet Malachi and ended with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That period in which God did not speak to his people by the prophets. There were no prophets, no new revelation then during that time. And the Jews themselves acknowledged this. God was not during that 400 years or so speaking to his people by the inspired prophets as he had spoken to them through Malachi and the other prophets. And he did not so speak again until he sent the angel Gabriel to speak to uh, Mary and to Elizabeth and Zechariah. The Jews did not accept these books as canonical books. There's much in them that's contrary to the scriptures. In fact, one of the reasons the Roman Catholics want to accept some of these books is that they teach things that the Roman Catholics teach. They teach, for example, the idea of purgatory, of salvation by works, that uh, the body weighs down the soul. Remember the strength of the ascetic movement in the Roman Catholic Church, the monkish movement in the Roman Catholic Church. They teach things like the pre-existence of souls. The historical books have historical errors and contradictions in them. One of them says God's people should not help sinners. These are teachings which are clearly contrary to the scriptures and to the Old Testament scriptures. And there's in them uh, fabulous, what we may call fabulous stuff, that is stuff that's miraculous, supposedly, but not miraculous in the same sense of the miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ or the miracles of the apostles, They're not miracles of healing, miracles of helping others, but uh, miracles that point to the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, they seem to be just miracles for miracles' sakes. And so the church from its earliest days rejected these Old Testament uh, apocrypha. It was not until later that the Roman Catholic Church began to want to include some of these books in the canon of the scriptures. So that's uh, about the Old Testament um, books. Let's uh, say a few words also about the New Testament Apocrypha. There is a long list of New Testament Apocrypha. I just went to Wikipedia and looked up the uh, term New Testament Apocrypha in Wikipedia. 
I found a list of dozens of books that might possibly be included in the in consideration for uh, the canon. These books also fall into all the different categories of New Testament writing. There are Gospels, like the Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Thomas. There are Acts, Acts even of an individual apostles, like Acts of Peter and Acts of Paul. There are letters, letters written to various churches or to various individuals. There are apocalypses, that is, prophecies regarding the end times. And there are many of these books. And so the, the New Testament church had to uh, filter through this uh, and decide which of these books was canonical and which was not. And immediately, from the very beginning, the church uh, divided this literature, all this literature that was available to it, from the early New Testament period, into three different categories. There were the canonical or the inspired writings. The writings of the Apostle Paul, for example, were recognized already during apostolic times. We'll come back to that in a moment. The Gospels were recognized very early as canonical. Only a few books actually took some time uh, for the church to decide. That was the first category then. They, they clearly had the idea that there were inspired books, books which came directly from God himself. But they also then talked about books that were not inspired, not canonical, but nevertheless useful. Books that could be helpful in the instruction of the people of God. Into this category fell books like The Shepherd of Hermes, that's H-E-R-M-E-S, The Shepherd of Hermes, Didache, a kind of catechism, and a few others, Letters of Clement and things like that. Among these books, there are some which specifically in themselves repudiate the idea that they are canonical, that they should be considered as equal to the writings of the apostles. And the church uh, recognized that there was a category like this, a category of useful books, books which were biblical, taught biblical things, were helpful to the people of God, but were not inspired and could therefore err. And finally, there were the books which the church considered heretical one of the earliest heresies in the New Testament church was the heresy of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism basically teaches that matter is evil and salvation is uh, to be saved from the flesh, from the body. And the way of salvation is the way of knowledge, esoteric knowledge. That's why it was called uh, Gnosticism, which has to do with the idea of knowledge. They uh, were people like the Manichaeans and other such groups. And the church recognized that these groups were heretical and that their writings then also expressed their heretical, non-biblical notions and had to be rejected altogether. They 
had no place in the instruction of the people of God. But again, the question is why? What kind of criteria were used? Well, most of the New Testament Apocrypha come from the post-apostolic period. And they were eliminated by the church simply on that ground. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. Not anybody else. Just the apostles and the prophets. Only those writings, therefore, which came from the apostles and those closely associated with the apostles could be considered for a place in the canon. Anything that followed the apostolic period was automatically eliminated because it was not apostolic. But there are, nevertheless, a few books among these that were earlier, or might at least have been earlier. That is, during the time of the apostles. Not written by the apostles and their associates. That would be one thing, then. That would eliminate them. Sometimes they claimed apostolic authorship, but this could be proved to be fraudulent. Many times... Their content was inconsistent with the scriptures, with the rest of the scriptures. Uh, The Gospel of Peter, for example, talks about a talking cross. The Gospel of Thomas is a collection, supposed collection of sayings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's a quotation from saying number 114, which I found in one of the resources I was looking at. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary go away from us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, Lo, I shall lead her so that I may make her a male, that she too may become a living spirit, resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. This is very strange stuff. The Infancy Gospel of Thomas, a different book from the Gospel of Thomas, has Jesus making clay birds come alive. This is the kind of miracles you find in them, not miracles of healing and miracles of helping, but miracles that seem to have no point except that they were miracles. There's much, therefore, false teaching in them. And the church in the early centuries of the New Testament period quickly recognized the heretical character of this teaching and rejected these books on those grounds, in part. But there's one one more uh, helpful thing, I think, that we can discuss in this uh, connection. And that is the development of the idea of a canon, of a body of inspired works, a collection of inspired works. Michael Kruger said in his book that this idea originated not with men, but with God. That it was God who had in his own counsel and in his own mind 
the idea of a collection of inspired writings which would be the foundation of his church. And that he saw to it that this collection then of inspired writings came into being and was given to us for our salvation and for our instruction. And then he saw to it that this canon came into being under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, as Christ himself promised. And there are some passages that we want to look at in this connection. I think these are important passages in this connection. John chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. John 14, verses 25 and 26. Jesus was talking here, remember, to his 12 apostles on the eve of his death. And he was telling them about his going away from them, his ascension into heaven. On the next day, in fact, and he was promising to them the Holy Spirit, that other comforter whom he would send to be with them after he had ascended into heaven. And in this chapter, 14, verses 25 and 26, he says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. He tells him, I've been telling you all these things. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. I think that's very important for the whole idea of the canon. Jesus is talking to the apostles here, and he's saying, I've been with you now for three or three and a half years, and you've heard my teaching, and you've seen my mighty works, but I know about the fallibility of your memories. I know that you will not remember everything I taught. I know that you will not remember clearly every detail of the mighty works that I did. I know that your memories can even deceive you and mislead you about certain things, that you can make mistakes about these things if you are going to rely merely on your own memories. And so I'm going to send you the Helper, the Holy Spirit, and he will teach you all these things. And he will bring to your remembrance everything that I said to you. That is, he will refresh and restore your memories so that you know what I said, you remember what I did, you are able to record it accurately. I think that's the point that Jesus is making here. He's talking to the apostles, he's saying to the apostles, it's implicit in his words anyway to the apostles, you are going to be the foundation of the church, I'm not going to leave you alone to remember my teaching, to remember my mighty works on your own, I'm going to send you my helper who will bring all to remembrance for you. And he goes back to this subject in chapter 16. This is on the same evening before his death, still talking to the 12 apostles. Chapter 16, verses 12 to 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So he says, I haven't even finished teaching you yet. There are many things that I need to say to you 
still. But you're not able to take them in at this point. You're not ready yet to receive this teaching. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that He will take of Mine and declare it to you. Now notice the chain of connection here. The Father has all things, Jesus says. But all things that the Father has are Mine. I have them all. And the Holy Spirit, whom I'm going to send unto you, He's going to have what I have. I'm going to give it to him. He will take of what is mine. And he will declare it to you. From the Father to the Son to the Spirit to the Apostles. And from the Apostles, of course, to the Church. I think Jesus is talking here about the whole process of inspiration and about his so working in the Apostles that their preaching and teaching was inspired preaching and teaching. The church could rely on their word as the very word of God. I don't think it's limited necessarily exclusively to that. The Lord Jesus Christ has continued to work in his church by the Spirit, but not to add new revelation. Revelation came through the apostles. The inspired writings came through the apostles. But he continues to work in the church so that the church understands the apostolic writings. The doctrine of the Trinity, for example, was not immediately confessed in all its aspects by the church. It took some time for the church to fully understand that doctrine. The doctrine of the deity of Christ had to be fought for in the early church and was finally uh, put down in the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed and the Nicene Creed by the church. Salvation by grace alone was a doctrine that needed some time for the church to develop. And the same is true with regard to the canon. It was all there. The apostolic writings were there. But the doctrine of the canon was something also that the church had to take some time to understand fully. But the apostles themselves then, under the uh, guidance of the Holy Spirit and by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, understood that they were speaking the very word of God himself. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. The apostle writing to the church in Thessalonica shows what he thinks of his own teaching. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Paul says, I taught you, the Word of God. You recognized it as the Word of God. 
word was not my own word. This word which I taught was the word of God himself. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he uh, goes on uh, further about this whole matter. Look at verse 5. Do you not remember, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He says to the Thessalonians, you're now, it seems, almost ready to accept teachings that's contrary to my teaching. Don't you remember what I told you? My teaching was authoritative. My teaching came from God himself. Why are you ready to accept something else? And verse 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Take hold of my word, the word of the apostles. Hold the traditions which you were taught. Don't forsake those traditions for these other things that are being taught now among you. And in verses 1 and 2, therefore, he says, of that same chapter, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. He says, these are false teachers and false apostles. Some of them are even pretending to speak for uh, me, or some of them are pretending to be me, or by letter as if from us. These are false teachers and false apostles. You must not listen to them. Don't you remember what I told you? Hold fast the traditions which you received from me. Paul sets his own teaching then as the authoritative standard for the church of the Thessalonians. Peter considered the writings of the apostle Paul to be the very word of God. Second, Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. Second, Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. He puts the writings of the Apostle Paul into the category of the scriptures. And that's a term reserved for the inspired scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Peter considered these writings of Paul then to be inspired writings, the word of God himself. And so what happened then, as the apostles wrote their books, their letters, and so on, is that the churches that received these books received them as the very word of God. And they then began for both private reasons and public reasons to copy these letters and to distribute them, these writings, and to distribute them around the other churches and to individual saints. Perhaps a a saint in one church would want a copy of 
books and of some of the inspired books, the writings of the Apostle Paul, for example. And he would hire a scribe to copy the books as the church of which he was a member had them. And so they began to collect these writings in, in various uh, places and in various ways and to distribute these widely. This is how the canon came into being, you see. They recognized the books as apostolic, as, as the word of God, and they wanted the others, other churches and other Christians to have access to these books. And they collected them and distributed them and copied them and, and sent them around to friends and relatives and to other churches. Paul even says to the Colossians in Colossians 4 verse 16, send your letter from me on to the church at Laodicea so that they can hear it. And make sure that you read the letter from the to the Laodiceans. This was how we came to this whole notion of a canon. It came right out of the scriptures, right out of the teaching of the apostles, right from God himself. And so, though it took some time for the church actually to recognize all that God was teaching about this subject of the canon. Just as it took the church time to recognize teaching about the doctrine of the Trinity and teaching about the deity of Christ and so on. Nevertheless, the church came to a proper understanding of this doctrine as well. So that we may be confident that what we have in the scriptures is indeed the very word of God what he spoke through the apostles and prophets, and what he has given to us for our salvation, and so that we may live to his glory in his world. May God bless us through his word.